This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lott Sami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable. Good morning and welcome to America's Roundtable. This weekend we're delighted and honored to welcome a champion of liberty, free enterprise, and the rule of law. His dedicated efforts and service to our nation is making a profound impact. And through his leadership over the years, our special guest this weekend, Senator Jim DeMint, has been a strong supporter of Israel's sovereignty and a close friend of the Jewish people within Israel and around the world. Senator Jim DeMint represented South Carolina in the U.S. House and the U.S. Senate, and he has fought tirelessly for freedom, prosperity, and traditional American values against the Washington Swamp for over two decades. Senator DeMint is the chairman of the Conservative Partnership Institute. Indeed, we are truly honored to welcome former U.S. Senator Jim DeMint. Good morning and welcome, Senator DeMint. Welcome, Senator DeMint. Good morning to both of you. I was so excited to see how well your conference in Jerusalem went. Uh, it was good to see it all over the world, in fact. So uh, congratulations. Thank you, Thank you so much. much, and we appreciate your leadership and partnership indeed. Senator DeMint, our fellow Americans witnessed a robust debate in the U.S. House of Representatives, whereby Republicans had an open conversation regarding increasing transparency around how legislation is put together. And in fact, through your leadership at Conservative Partnership Institute, the organization called for principal measures to engage the broader membership in legislating and bring accountability back to the people's house. Senator DeMint, what are your principal recommendations to conservative leaders in Congress, specifically those in the U.S. House of Representatives, and what should be their top priorities for our fellow Americans and America's future? Great question, and I appreciate the way you described what happened in the speaker's race. It was a robust debate. It was not chaos. A lot of people in the media wanted us to think this was dysfunction. In fact, this is the way Congress should operate, where there is more openness in discussion. Unfortunately, Republican leadership for several decades has talked about uh, Republican principles like reducing spending uh, and debt and, and reducing the size of government. But not many Republicans actually insist on that once they're in the House or the Senate. There's a group, we call them conservatives, or some of them are part of the Freedom Caucus, who actually push for those things um, that are not just uh, ideology. Uh, our country's in trouble. I mean, we're, we're way over the hill in debt, uh, crazy spending, a lot of waste, things that need to be done for the future. So these uh, group, uh, this group uh, insisted that if we're going to have a speaker, that speaker needs to allow, as you said, 
more transparency and open debate. And for years, uh, the conservatives had been punished. They'd kept off committees. Uh, the leadership had even tried to uh, defeat them in Republican primaries. So these brave uh, 20 folks decided to take a stand and insist that uh, conservatives are allowed on committees, that conservative uh, amendments are allowed on the floor, and that we get a commitment from leadership that we will do everything we can to balance the budget within 10 years. Now, to a normal person, that, that doesn't sound uh, very aggressive uh, to keep spending uh, more than you're bringing in for nine years and then balance on the 10th year. But in Washington, that is a radical proposal. So you ask about what I would recommend, and, and we do have a chance to support and work with a lot of conservatives here at CPI. In fact, that's our purpose, is probably the only way that they can address spending uh, in the next year or two is to have a another robust debate about the debt limit. Uh, because it's impossible here, and this may sound a, a little crazy, it's impossible for Congress to pass a spending bill that cuts spending. Uh, because all of the Democrat constituency wants more from government, more spending, and there are always enough Republicans to join them. So the only way to stop spending is to force Congress to stop. And that's why the debt limit's in place in the in the first place. So the debt limit is something that uh, Congress, again, it'll be a robust debate and people will say, oh, you're going to bankrupt the country. We'll default on our loans. That's not the way it works. Uh, the, the, they just have to prioritize uh, and they'll try to scare seniors that they'll cut Medicare and Social Security. They won't because they're not even on budget. But so the next big step is to try to deal with the spending by by working with the debt limit. And that addresses a lot of things, a debate about Ukraine spending, a debate about foreign uh, policy and support for countries like Israel. So there's a lot in front of us the next few months. Uh, Senator DeMint, uh, you mentioned debt ceiling and uh, uh, debt limit. Uh, Congress set the debt limit at some $31.4 trillion in 2021. And on January 10, 2023, U.S. government debt was $30.92 trillion, about 22% more than the GDP. Right. That is the value of all goods and services that will be produced in the U.S. economy this year. Uh, Treasury Secretary Yellen warned, and you actually just mentioned, uh, scared, that the government could become unable to pay its bills after early June if the debt ceiling is not increased. Mm -hmm. uh, Republicans and House Speaker McCarthy said they would oppose raising the debt limit unless Democrats also agreed to cut federal spending. Right. Now, according to historic data, the U.S. government has a regular practice of raising the debt ceiling at the last minute. Mm -hmm. As Senator DeMint, isn't this a problem of not having a budget yeah. at all? It appears that since 1998, Congress has failed to pass a budget in seven of the last 15 fiscal years. And the budget should entail the decision about what expenditures shall we have during the next year and how exactly shall we pay for them. Right. So how do we move from this practice of raising the debt ceiling at the last minute and instead passing a budget with a goal, as you shared, to eventually balance the budget? Yeah. Well, if we don't balance the budget, uh, at some point there's going to be a major crash. 
Um, and um, people know that we're on an unsustainable course and unsustainable means it's going to stop. We don't know if it's going to be this year, next year or 10 years from now. But we do know, as you said, we're spending um, our debt is is bigger than the uh, our, our whole economy. And so we've got to do something about it. And one of the reason the debt limit, it was created in the first place was to make Congress stop and address the spending and bring things back to balance so that you can't keep. So the debt ceiling or debt limit is, in effect, a balanced budget amendment. Uh, you're supposed to stop spending, balance the budget. Um, we, we It's just the two parties are so far apart on the issue because we know we need to fund the military to protect ourselves and our allies. The Democrats have had a pattern for the last two decades of whatever the Republicans want for defense, they have to receive for their their social welfare, um, Green New Deal type programs. Um, and so the, we keep bidding the, the budget higher and higher. It's going to be hard to break that. I led a, a, a fight against raising the debt limit uh, over 10 years ago in the Senate, and we really brought the place to a standstill. Uh, they were saying we were going to default. We're, we're never going to default. We've got enough coming in to pay the, the interest on our, our debt, but we would have to begin to cut things that we don't have to do, um, and that would be very painful, but if they do it the right way, and that's what we had at the time. We called it cut, cap, and balance. It slowed the growth of spending over a 10-year period, so the economy grew faster than the spending grew. And at some point, those lines meet, and, and in our case, we had it meeting in about nine or 10 years. The budget would balance without actually really cutting. You just slow the growth. Um, it, that sounds very reasonable, too, but that's hard to do. But it's, it's really frustrating because uh, Congress treats this like it's not a real problem. They did with the um, the subprime mortgages, too. Uh, and all the people in government were saying it's no problem. And then we had a big crash. A lot of people lost what they had saved for years. I think what we're headed for could be much, much worse than anything we had ever seen. And I really think we need to take it seriously. And so when the media tells you that these people fighting about the debt limit are obstructionists, you just need to know that they're the only ones who are taking the problem seriously enough to say, let's stop and figure out how to reduce spending. Senator Dementia raised the issue of Ukraine and serious concerns are being raised by our fellow Americans and leaders across the nation regarding the Ukraine-Russia conflict and the heavy burden it places on the American taxpayer and the next generation. And some critics are calling for greater European support than rather the lopsided support where America is actually doing the heavy lifting. Right. Uh, the Biden administration has now approved some $109 billion worth of military aid to Ukraine. And to put that into perspective, Russia's annual military spending is just around $66 billion. The UK spent only $68 billion, France $56 billion. And that raises some concerns about the level of significant aid we're giving without much accountability. And a Brussels media group stated, 
in October 2022 that weapons sent to Ukraine may have found their way back to Finland and ended up in the hands of criminal underground. Uh, Senator Dimin, without greater accountability measures put in place, we could even find Russia's military getting their hands on America's sophisticated and highly advanced military hardware. Senator Dimin, what can Congress do to address the concerns of spending higher levels of taxpayer aid to Ukraine? And isn't it time to have that necessary conversation that we must also address rampant corruption in Eastern Europe's post-communist Ukraine? It's a very complex question. I, I was in Kiev after the, the Orange Revolution, and um, I think a lot of people in America don't understand. We probably lost Ukraine uh, decades ago after the wall came down because the, we did not, uh, and we did this with other countries too, but Ukraine has really suffered. We, we did not bring them into the European-American orbit soon enough economically. Russia has meddled in their elections, destabilized their country, has been responsible for a lot of the corruption there. And when the Orange Revolution actually elected someone of the people, that person was soon poisoned by the Russians. And so it's not an easy question. And if Russia um, wins and takes over Ukraine, that's a huge problem for the rest of the world. So it's not as easy as saying, uh, let's just cut aid. But you're right. The way we do things and the unaccountability of all the weapons, we're just kind of pushing in. Our people aren't on the ground. Um, we have some in Poland and around Ukraine, but a lot of money and equipment is moving into Ukraine and we don't know where it's going. I mean, we know it's helping because they've they've been able to hold their own. I just know our government well enough that they fight political wars rather than wars to win. And they, they're likely to dribble enough there. They don't want Ukraine to win, but they don't want them to lose. That ends up with a very expensive war like we had in Afghanistan. We didn't want to win, but we didn't want to lose. And we lost troops. Um, so I, I think Republicans are going to do some investigation here. It's going to be hard because the Democrats would prefer just the emotional idea of let's just send more. But you said something, Joel, that's really important. Europe started out as if they were the big uh, supporters of Ukraine. As we've gotten into this, uh, their support militarily, economically has, has been smaller and smaller. Um, and U.S., as often happens, has has taken the bulk of the load. Um, and we can't really afford this. Uh, and we're finding that our military does have limits. I mean, we're running out of equipment mm. that we might need. And 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 I, I would not be surprised to th to find that Russia and China and countries are working together to try to draw us into regional conflicts to wear us down. When China invades Taiwan, uh, America's not going to be as strong as, as we might be to, to push back here. I know a lot of Americans, including myself, don't want us to be the policemen for the world. But I've been in enough meetings with people all over the world, leaders from countries, uh, allies and enemies have told me behind closed doors that if America doesn't lead, the whole world will devolve into chaos. Uh, and so 
it's our role whether we like it or not. So we have to figure out how to keep Russia mm-hmm. from taking over Ukraine, hopefully with, with sanctions, economic pressure. We could do a whole lot more if we were exporting more energy to Europe so they could cut Russia off completely. And we're just not doing the things that we could do that would bring Russia to their knees so we didn't have to win this militarily. Senator to the Minton domestic front, another question. Uh, the most recent revelation of classified materials found at the residence of Joe Biden in Delaware, and prior to that at the Washington-based think tank, Penn Biden Center for Diplomacy and Global Engagement, show a troubling trend of erosion of the rule of law in America. Uh, the classified documents were first revealed on November 2, 2022, yet not announced in public until after the midterm elections, which reminds us of the big tech and corporate media hiding information about Hunter Biden's laptop and corruption, which was revealed only after the 2020 presidential elections. Mm -hmm. And if we look at the DOJ's approach to holding of classified materials by President Biden and compare it to the approach to former President Trump, federal agents obtained a warrant to search Trump's residence while the, this past week, DOJ rejected having FBI agents monitor search for Biden documents. Yeah. Um, is the rule of law principle being upheld here? I don't, I don't think so. And, and it's, it seems, I'm, I'm sure to you and to me and a lot of people, that there's a, a double standard here. Um, we could talk for a long time comparing these two cases between uh, Trump and Biden. Uh, but the archives, uh, the, the Department of Justice knew that there were classified documents at Mar-a-Lago, and they, they were negotiating which ones he could keep. They knew they were there. It wasn't a secret. They were in. A, they knew where they were locked, and it's, it's a very different situation, and it, and it seemed completely unreasonable for them to raid the, the Mar-a-Lago when they were actually in the process of discussing which ones could come home. And Trump does have the authority, whether he followed all the traditional protocol or not, he has the authority to declassify documents um, and and keep them himself. And there's really not a law that says how you declassify them. Uh, If he says they're declassified, that's the case. And Biden does not have the authority to declassify or even remove classified documents from a classified setting. It, you know, I've got a lot of theories, and I'm, I'm afraid I've become a little conspiratorial as um, and more cynical as I've stayed in Washington. Uh, but there's several things at play here. It, like you said, they they knew about this uh, before the election. There were several a couple of months before they revealed it, um, and that's suspicious. But it's suspicious that uh, Biden had his own lawyers going to um, look through his papers. One theory I have is that they know Republicans are going to start investigating and they wanted to cleanse documents, any documents that could have been acquired through Freedom of Information Act or other things like that. The other theory that some are passing around, which is reasonable, is that um, that this was a burn notice for uh, for Joe Biden, that, um, you know, these are actually Obama's lawyers who are working for Biden and they may have decided that it's time for Joe Biden to announce he's not running again. So I don't know, but there's a lot of things here that just don't feel right, right. Um, that are very suspicious of how it happened, why it happened, uh, and the timing. Uh, so there's a lot of things in government now that I think make a lot of Americans just not trust 
what we're hearing and what we're knowing. But uh, we've, we've got to realize sometimes classified documents are actually very serious in that they mention foreign players whose lives could be at risk if if people know about them. Uh, and, and apparently a lot of people had access to these documents uh, in, in the, the Penn uh, Biden Center and his home. So I don't know. It, it seems much worse to me what happened to Biden than, than what Trump did. Right. On the final note, you continue to lead America's conservative movement through the Washington, D.C.-based group, Conservative Partnership Institute. And what are your top priorities at CPI for 2023? And we'd certainly like to engage our listeners to visit CPI.org. Well, thank you. I mean, our, our whole job is to build, unite the whole conservative movement. And we call it, call it the American movement because it's it's really the traditional American ideas of capitalism and freedom uh, and uh, hard work uh, of God and family, those kind of ideas. And so people in Congress who share those traditional American ideas are often uh, marginalized and punished. And so I realized after being in the House and the Senate that we need to give more support to the people who are fighting the good fight in the House and the Senate. So we help them get good staff. We train their staff. We provide places for them to meet and strategize. You know, the media reported a lot of them were here during the, the speaker's robust debate. And it, it's just a place where they can come together and talk. Uh, we're not here to tell them what to do, but we're here to support them. And so a lot of what we're doing now is expanding our, our whole training um, system into an academy for more young people, more scholarships that we could actually do this for kids that are in college, help them know the jobs that are available here. After college, if they want to work on the Hill, we, we can help them get jobs. But they need to know how the place works because that gives them the, the power uh, to actually get things done. So um, I feel like I'm making more of a difference at the conservative partnership than I ever did as a congressman or a senator. So um, I'm, I'm glad to have this opportunity. Thank you so much for your leadership, Senator Dimend, and we encourage our engaged listeners to visit cpi.org. Once again, thank you, Senator Dimend. Thank you so much, Senator Dimend. Thank you both. It was our great honor to host the Fourth Jerusalem Leaders Summit in Israel during the last week of December 2022 at the Menachem Begin Center in Jerusalem. Indeed, our convening in Jerusalem sent a strong message that like-minded leaders from America and Europe stand with Israel, affirm its sovereignty, and support principal efforts that strengthen this strategic partnership. Our convening in Jerusalem was to reaffirm the important responsibility that leaders and engaged stakeholders, the electorate, have in the West as guardians of the rule of law civilization to be ever vigilant in strengthening the rule of law, which protects life, individual liberty, freedom of speech, and private property. We were truly honored to share these words from Senator Jim DeMint, a video message that inspired those who attended the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. The message challenges us all and inspires us to do more in strengthening America's ties with Israel. We invite you to listen to Senator DeMint's message. Shalom. This is Senator Jim DeMint. And I'm honored to address the 4th Jerusalem Leaders Summit. From here in Washington, D.C., America's capital city, to Jerusalem, the capital city of Israel. I greet leaders participating in Jerusalem and those joining us virtually from all around the world. Our gathering affirms America's strong bonds of partnership with the Jewish state of Israel 
and a commitment to advance our shared values and timeless principles. America's founding fathers demonstrated strong support for the Jewish community, including George Washington, John Adams, and Abraham Lincoln. President George Washington, America's first president, wrote, May the children of the stock of Abraham, who dwell in the land, continue to merit and enjoy the goodwill of the other inhabitants, while everyone shall sit in safety under his own vine and fig tree, and there shall be none to make him afraid. In 1819, John Adams made the first pro-Zionist declaration by an American head of state after receiving a book from Mordecai Noah, a Jewish-American newspaper editor, politician, and diplomat. Adams wrote, For I really wish the Jews, again in Judea, an independent nation. That dream and vision of Jews around the world became a reality when at midnight on May 14, 1948, the provisional government of Israel proclaimed a new state of Israel. The United States immediately recognized the authority of the Jewish state on that same day. Israel will soon be celebrating its 75th anniversary as an independent nation. We join you in celebrating this extraordinary achievement. The Jewish state of Israel is a beacon of freedom in the Middle East and the world with its foundation based on the rule of law. As we gather today and look at the future, we are also reminded of the importance of advancing strategic initiatives that are beginning to make a real difference in the region. The Abraham Accords, led by the Trump administration and with our partner Israel, have brought together nations, including the United Arab Emirates, the Kingdom of Bahrain, Morocco, and Sudan, in normalizing the relations with the Jewish state. These historic Abraham Accords may be one of the most underreported success stories of our time. According to Israel's Ministry of Economic Affairs, trade between Israel and the Gulf states reached 1.4 billion in the last half year alone. Almost half a million Israelis have visited the UAE over the last two years. We believe that more can be done and should be done through the encouragement and positive engagement of American leadership and America's allies around the world. You can count on America's leaders who are committed to strengthening U.S.-Israel ties to join with you in pursuing a vision of peace, security, and prosperity in the Middle East and around the world. I close by sharing these words from President Ronald Reagan that he delivered at a White House meeting with Jewish leaders in 1983. He said, Since the foundation of the State of Israel, the United States has stood by her and helped her to pursue security, peace, and economic growth. Our friendship is based on historic, moral, and strategic ties, as well as our shared dedication to democracy. Friends, I look forward to being back in Jerusalem soon and meeting with all of you. May God bless Israel and may God bless the United States of America. Shalom. The- 
This is America's Roundtable from Washington, D.C., an initiative of the U.S.-based think tank International Leaders Summit in partnership with Lancer Broadcasting Corporation and Supertalk Mississippi Media. Thank you for joining us on America's Roundtable. I'm Joe Lalansami, your co-host, joined by economist Natasha Serdorch, co-founder of International Leaders Summit and the Jerusalem Leaders Summit. America's Roundtable guests include leading voices from business, government, media, energy, technology, healthcare, and the broad policy arena. Subscribe to America's Roundtable on Apple Podcasts, Amazon, and Spotify. Visit America's Roundtable at americasrt.com. americasrt.com. Follow us on Facebook, America's Roundtable, and Twitter at americasrt. We invite donors and advertisers to reach us by visiting our website, americasrt.com. Welcome to America's Roundtable!